I have a confession to make. I'm not a very good passenger, as in passenger in a car. You can just ask my poor wife. If I'm not driving, I'm what you might say a little, a little antsy, a little on edge. I'm always second-guessing decisions. Sh- shouldn't we have turned there? Or couldn't you, couldn't you pass that person? Now, I know better after 19 years of marriage than to always say these things. And yet, nonetheless, the, the eyes that are constantly looking in those mirrors or the head that's darting and looking over the shoulder, well, that says it all. If someone drifts in our lane or if I see a car coming out of the corner of my eye, I tend to sit bolt straight upright. I grip those armrests. And I don't exactly panic, but the message is clear. I don't really trust you in that seat. Why don't I get behind the wheel? Now, how I'm going to deal with my daughter who turns 16 next year, I have no idea. But you can pray for me in that. All right, now, I don't think I'm that unusual, right? We all like to be in the driver's seat. Why? Because we often think we know best. So did you know that just over seven out of ten drivers think they're better than average? Okay, right? you got to think about that one for a moment. Just over seven out of ten drivers think they are better than average. Which, of course, by definition, can't be true. It can't be true. But you'll be hard-pressed to convince that 20% that it's not true. And I know that because just a few years ago, driving cross-country, my wife looked at me and said, you are not a very good driver anymore. And I remember how offended I felt. I'm like, me? It's not me. They've all gotten worse. They're dragging me into their driving habits. Right? It's what psychologists call illusory superiority. You know, there was a classic study where a sample of college professors were asked how they relate relative to their peers. Anyone want to guess how they responded? 94% thought they ranked above their peers. 94%. The moral of the story apparently is if you're looking for humility, don't go into the academy. Again, illusory superiority. We like to be in the driver's seat because on average, we think we're better than average. If not in our cars, certainly in our lives, perhaps even in the world about us. For don't you sometimes find yourself saying, boy, I knew if I was in control of things, it would look different. It would look better, right? It's the pitch of every politician We've had four or eight years of this joker's policies. Look, we're no better off than where we were before. Come with me. Follow me. I'll bring change that we need. Right? But it's not just in politics. We see it in other ways. Right? If if I was in the driver's seat of my home, I know things would look different. Devotions would be more consistent. Our finances would be in better shape. There wouldn't be so many half-finished projects around the house. Or if I was behind my boss's chair, I would know what to do. Our company would be on better footing. Morale amongst employees would certainly be higher. We do this even with God. Look at the mess of the world. Rogue trucks plowing into crowded department stores. Infants foaming at the mouth due to toxic nerve agents. Starvation, plagues, natural disasters. If I were in charge of things upstairs, certainly I could do something about this mess. I wonder if in any way, any of that might describe you. Might it describe you? And if so, what does that do to your relationship, say, with your spouse in the home? Or with your boss? Or even more importantly, what does that do with your relationship with God? And for that, I want us to turn back 
in our Bibles to our study and the book of Job. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the seatbacks before you, you should be able to find it on page 443 of those Bibles. Page 443, let me encourage you to turn there. And if you just happen to be joining us in the study, these last three weeks, we've been drawn into the depths of one man's despair. We open the book to discover that Job is a deeply pious and prosperous man. And yet, but in a few moments, everything is ripped from him, right? His business, his savings, his family, his friends, his health, it's all gone. And so dejected and alone, Job is struggling to put the pieces of his life back together. He's trying to make sense of it. And it's not merely the stuff that he lost that's made him so distraught. It's that somewhere along the way, he assumes because of all this, he's lost God. He's lost God. And three friends come to comfort him. And yet their counsel resembles far less of that comforting arm around the shoulder and a lot more like a pointed finger right in the chest. In their world, virtue is rewarded and vice is punished. You reap what you sow. Therefore, Job, you must be one great sinner to be undergoing such great suffering. But Job, as we saw last week, he resolutely holds fast to his innocence. Not that he's sinless, but that he's blameless of all these charges that are coming from his friends. And so he begins to demand a hearing with God. He wants God to acquit him of all these trumped up charges. And not only that, we saw in chapter 31, he actually wants God to take the stand. He wants God to answer for how he's dealt with him. And the implication is this. If I were in the driver's seat, I would be handling things differently. I would be handling them better. Though he's not cursing God, his, claim, his complaints have begun to take the shape of charges against God. You know, God, it is time for you to own up to the mess that you have made of my life. And so God will finally speak in some of the most glorious chapters, really, in all the Bible. I was tempted to simply read chapters 38 to 41 and just call it a morning. Certainly be a great way to spend our time. But instead, right, you did call me to preach and to explain, and so I'm going to attempt to do that as best I can. We're going, to, we're going to read much of these chapters, not all of them, hitting some of the key sections, so you can get a feel for a weight of the text, what God's trying to communicate to Job, and then make some observations. So Job's been waiting a long time, 37 chapters for God to break the silence. And what's God going to say finally to Job? He's demanded a hearing, and God speaks. So look with me, Job chapter 38, beginning in verse 1. And again, follow along. I'll, I'll read verses, and then I'll, I'll jump forward a bit. So just stay with me. Job 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Then jump down to verse 16. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? Where is the place of darkness? 
that you may take it to its territory, that you may discern its paths to its home. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of snow, or have you seen the storehouses of hail? Verse 29. From whose womb did the ice come forth, and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? Verse 31. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings? They may go and say to you, here we are. Verse 39. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? Chapter 39, verse 1. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Verse 9. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Down to 19. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. Verse 26. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? Chapter 40. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I say to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me? that you may be in the right. Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. Look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then, will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Behold, Behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him Bring near his sword. Chapter 41, verse 1. Can you draw out Leviathan with the fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird, or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. We're going to stop there. Oh my. Okay, so God's voice has finally penetrated the deafening silence of Job's existence. This, again, is the moment that's been building for 37 chapters. 
And imagine your Job, a man who's lost everything. Right? Physically, you're writhing in pain. Your bones scream in agony. Your skin is constantly breaking open in those putrid pustules. Right? Emotionally, you are just hollow and gutted. Right? You wish you were dead. Spiritually, you're, just, you're hanging on but by a thread. And what's God's answer? What does God give to Job? A ticket to the zoo. Right? That's what he gives to Job. He says, check out the hippo. How how about that wild ox? I mean, what in the world is going on? If you're Job, you're thinking, God, are you kidding me? Seriously? We have more pressing topics of conversation between us other than where the wild goats give birth. This is not the conversation Job was expecting. This isn't the conversation any of us were expecting. Certainly not Job. Job wanted God to explain himself. And instead, he gets treated to the latest installment of planet Earth. Right? Featuring like Leviathan and Behemoth. Like, who are these guys? What is happening? It's Job's final cry. Remember back in chapter 31? Job threw down the gauntlet. He said, God, I've been hauled to court on these trumped up charges, but I'm not guilty of any sin deserving such suffering. 30 chapters, remember, no one has brought a shred of guilt and evidence to prove otherwise. I'm not guilty, which means if I'm being treated this way, you must be guilty. That's where Job ended. He dropped the mic and walked off. Job dared to put God in the dock. And in these chapters, God is tossing him right back in. And I want to make sure we understand the flow. There are two speeches that God is making here in chapters 38 through 41. The first runs from chapter 38 through chapter 40, verse 2. And in these verses, God gives Job a guided tour of creation, a tour that if you, if you listen and watch, largely shadows that same days of creation from Genesis 1 and 2. Notice the establishment of light, the separations of the heavens above from the earth below, the formation of land and sea, rain, vegetation, all the way to the, the animals that roam upon the earth. Right? There's this movement from creation to created beings. And there's an element in these chapters, and we hear where God is chastising Job. For did you notice how these chapters begin and end in this first speech? So chapter 38, look back there. Chapter 38, verse 2. His first words. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I'm pretty sure those are not the words Job wanted to hear first out of the Lord's mouth. But you jump forward even to chapter 40, verse 2. What does God say at the end of that first speech? Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And so Job does answer in chapter 40, verses 3 to 5. And after two chapters, right, two chapters of thorough cross-examination, Job withers. The man who was always ready with an answer to his friends, always ready with such an answer, now has no answer before God. He merely puts his hand over his mouth. Job wasn't guilty of scandalous sins. His friends were wrong about that. But he was guilty of speaking arrogantly about the Lord. And Elihu was right about that. Now that second speech begins in chapter 40, verse 6. Notice it opens the same as the first. The Lord speaks out of the whirlwind. That familiar chapter 40, verse verse 7. Dress for action like a man. I will question you. Make it known to me. Verse 9. Have you an arm like God that you can thunder with a voice like his? Job saying, or God saying to Job, if so, if that's the case, then you have nothing to fear from the most dreaded creatures on earth. 
this behemoth and the, and the Leviathan. And those are going to take up the rest of chapters 40 through chapter 41. And now much ink has been spilt over exactly who these sort of animals or these, these beasts are. Many see behemoth as the, as the hippopotamus. You know, they may look cute as stuffed animals, right? But with the, their jaws, they can crush a man in half. More individuals die in Africa to the hippopotamus than to the lion and everything else combined. Or you don't want to mess with them. They're serious beasts. Mostly Leviathan as the crocodile, given the description later on at the end of chapter 41. Again, not a creature you want to just stumble upon when you're out walking amidst the wild or out on that evening stroll. Now, some suggest, okay, they're actually mythical creatures and they're meant to depict Satan. But however you want to define these creatures, God's point is very clear. Job, if you're willing to step into the ring with me, surely you don't fear these guys. Surely you don't fear them. And then the chapters end. What what are we to make of them? Because while God is chastising Job for some of his presumptuous speech, he's doing more than that. By ushering him into the days of creation, by giving him a front row seat to the formation of the earth, and to the, even to the mysterious, the peculiar, the wild ways of some of the things that God has made, what God is doing is God is working to expand Job's horizons. Trying to expand his horizons. And I think there's one simple and very plain point God is at pains to make with Job. And it's this simple point. There is but one God, and you're not it. That's it. I think if you want to summarize these chapters, it's as simple as that. There is but one God, and you're not it. And if that's really the only point I've got for this message this morning, we'll have some subpoints to it. And it's direct, it's confrontational, but that's how God is being with Job in these chapters. That's the thrust. There's one God, Job, you're not it, you're not it. That's what he's relentlessly driving home with all these rhetorical questions. Again, look back, 38 verse 2. Who is this? Again, that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. So you can just imagine for a moment, you know, this week you're in the situation room with the president, with all of his senior advisors, and you're trying to think, okay, how are we going to deal with Syria? What are we going to do? And in strolls the guy, like, slept in the coffee cart. He's never read an intelligence briefing in his life. Doesn't even know where Syria is on a map. And he decides to pipe in and offer his opinion on how the senior advisors should deal with Bashar al-Assad. And you can imagine that moment, the president turning to his secretary of state and just saying, who's that guy? What's he doing in here? What, what is he opening his mouth for? Right, this is way above his pay grade. Shut that guy up. It's not a lot different with Job here. Job is not pleased with how God has been running things. And Job thought, you know, God, you might need a few tips behind the wheel. And God is simply saying back to Job, well, you know what? I don't think I ever realized you were the fourth member of the Trinity. Thank you. Thank you for the instruction. Right? 38 verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? Right? Architectural imagery. And he's saying, did, did you draft the architectural plans for the universe? Right? Was the Grand Canyon your work? Was Yellowstone your design? Right? The Great Barrier Reef, the Marianas Trench. Right? That was your, that, those were your plans, right? Oh, I, I didn't think so. I didn't think so. Over and over, we find these refrains. Who is this? Where were you? Can you, for example, bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion, just two constellations of the sky? Can you send forth lightning? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Right, a ridiculous image. To treat this scary beast like it's some household pet. Something you can put a leash on and walk with the kids. That's how God is talking about Job. Do you know the ordinances of the heaven? Do you give the horse his might? 
Have you commanded the morning since your days began? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you an arm like God? Right? We could just keep going over 40 times. We find those expressions. Do you? Have you? Can you? Where were you? All driving home the point. Very simple. That there is but one God. Job, it's not you. It's not you. And we need the same reminder. Because we don't say it, but we live and often think like the world does revolve around us. You know, it wasn't until the Copernican Revolution that we learned that the earth, in fact, wasn't the center of the universe, but it, in fact, revolved around something greater, something more massive. Right? We need our own Copernican revolutions, spiritually speaking. We need to learn that we're actually not the center of things, but someone greater is. He doesn't revolve around us, but rather we revolve around him. And our lives will only start to make sense when we grasp that fact. Job needed to be reminded of that simple fact. And so the Lord takes Job through this guided tour of the world that he's made. And I think in doing so, we can learn three particular things about God. And the first is this. That God communicates. That God communicates. You know, Job had to wonder, is God ever going to say anything? Is he ever going to speak You know, in any relationship, the silent treatment can feel sometimes like the worst form of punishment. Perhaps Job thought he was being punished in some way. Back in chapter 23, he cried out, Oh, that I knew where I might find him. Behold, I go forward, but he, referring to God, is not there. Backward, but I do not perceive him. Remember, Job fears he's lost God. And then, in chapter 38, verse 1, Out of the whirlwind which is how God would appear to Isaiah and to Jeremiah. Out of that whirlwind, sort of a divine theophany, God's presence comes and the Lord answers Job. Now, of course, the Lord didn't have to answer Job. Job is speaking of things which are too lofty for him, matters beyond his understanding, right? Matters well beyond his security clearance. He doesn't understand the things of the heavens. He can't. God's not, he's not beholden to Job to give such answers. So God could have said, like Jack Nicholson, to the cocky Tom Cruise and a few good men, right? Son, you can't handle the truth. I thought of that line, I don't know how many times this week. So finally, I'm like, you know what? I should... I should pull that line up. I haven't seen that movie in 20 years. I pulled it up. My kids were there. We watched it for a second. And it was one of those moments where I thought, well, actually, this, it kind of captures it, but Nicholson's kind of mean and God's not mean. And then my youngest daughter just blurts out, well, and God doesn't swear. It was like one of those pastoral fail moments, like, oh, my word, that was a bad illustration. But you get the point, kind of, right? Job, you can't handle these things. They are beyond you. But God doesn't do that, right? He draws him in. For four chapters, he he draws Job in. And he reminds Job of what he most needs. It's the kindest thing that God can ever give us. It's but a glimpse of him. Right? It's what God gave to Moses on the mountain. Just but a glimpse of him. Even if it means a bit of humiliation on Job's part, God in his kindness will give it to him. And who is he? Well, he reveals himself right there in chapter 38, verse 1, as the Lord, all caps. You know, that's telling you something. When you see that English word in all caps, it's, it's telling you that the Hebrew word behind it is Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God. And we can read right past that without ever giving it a second thought. But we see right there, God is revealing himself to Job as the promise-making, promise-keeping God. It speaks of his personal care, of his love, of his presence. And it's this God that speaks to Job. You know, interesting, we find this word Yahweh, the Lord, all caps, all over chapters 1 and 2. Job will use it once in chapter 12, speaking of God. But, you know, it's never used by Job's friends. 
It's never used, this personal covenant name of God, never used by them, suggesting that perhaps though Job will err, he does know God better than his friends. Something God will affirm of Job in the end. And God's going to invite Job on a journey, and he's going to ask Job to answer him, even dialogue with him, and God will bring Job back down to size. Right? He's in a suit far too big for him. He can't fill it. God will help him see that. But he's engaging with him. This isn't, wouldn't be lost on Job. There is hope because his God is speaking and dialoguing with him. Friend, we need to know this morning, we serve a God who communicates. He doesn't leave us grasping and groping blindly in the dark to try to understand him. You know, so often in our suffering, we wonder, where is God? Where is God? Why won't he speak to me? And all the while, our Bibles remain closed right by our bedside. We begin to ball up our hands as if in a fist, as opposed to reaching to that treasure of heavenly instruction, just waiting to be tapped. We're like the one who's mad that his friend hasn't responded to him. He keeps checking his voicemail. And yet all the while, his email is overflowing with unread messages. Friends, God has revealed himself to us in his word. Do you see his word as his gift to you? Do you know the power of it? Do you treasure it? Do you open it in order to merely learn things about God? Or do you open it in order to be drawn into relationship with him? You know, if you feel abandoned by God, if you feel confused by your circumstances, is that really because God has abandoned you? Or could it be because you have stopped listening to him? Our God communicates with us. Because he doesn't want us to merely know facts, but to enter into relationship with him. Right? God is not an idea so much to be debated as a person that we're called to encounter, to know, to cherish. The author of Hebrews opens long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he also created the world. You know, if you've come here this morning and you wouldn't identify as a Christian, know the only way any of us can have this kind of personal relationship with his God, it's through his son, Jesus Christ. Nobody in this world is sinless. Job knows, despite how blameless he is, he knows he's not sinless. We all pursue our own way over God's way. We all shake our fists at him in various ways. And thus, we all one day will enter God's courtroom and we will be guilty as charged. Every single one of us. Only Jesus lived that life free from sin. And there on the cross, he alone died as the truly innocent one for the guilty in our place. So that those of us, all of us, slowly rotting away on death row, right, might be given an eternal lease on life. One day, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And like Job, on that day, all of our mouths will go silent. Before him, we will not have a word to say. No excuse. No defense. No Johnny Cochran to get us off the hook. All we can do in that moment is but point to Christ who died on our behalf. That is our only hope. If you've come as a non-Christian, that is your only hope. That's the only hope for all of humanity. Don't leave here today without knowing and understanding exactly who Jesus is and what his death accomplished. You get pastors at the doors as you go. I'm often down here. Feel free to talk to any one of us. Okay, second thing we learn about God, though, is this. He communicates, yes, he also creates. A second thing, God creates. This is how uh, God continues there, chapter 38, verse 4, right? He, God, laid the foundations of the earth. He determined their measurements. If you look to chapter 38, verse 8, 
It says that it was God who shut in the sea with doors, with it bursting out from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment. This is God's doing. God made these things. Ice and frost, chapter 38, verses 29 to 30. He said that's part of his creation. And of course, the creative genius and wonder of God, realize that's exactly where the Bible begins. The very first verse in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created. Not in the beginning, matter existed and was worked upon by impersonal forces, No, this world isn't a cosmic accident. We don't owe our existence to chance, to some blind natural forces. It's God's creation. He called it very good. It's got order and purpose. And though we live in a world that is marred by sin, creation even groaning under the weight of sin, things don't work as they ought. Nonetheless, this material world is still good in God's sight. He created it. And knowing this can sometimes help Christians. It can free us from a a kind of false asceticism where the use and enjoyment of God's personal and material blessings to us, where where that might be conceived of as wrong. You know, just think in in what God's created. You know, he could have created this world, you know, with air filtration machines, like big heavenly HVAC units or something. But he didn't do it, did he? He gave us maples and walnuts and redwoods and red buds. He could have chosen to cast creation simply in black and white, and yet he rather gave us a palette of color. God gives both water and wine, bread and cheese, especially that French stinky cheese. I love to slather on a baguette, right? He gives us those things. You may not like them, whatever you like. They're good gifts, Right? Breathtaking sunsets, harvest moons. God's not stingy. He's not a scrooge. He's not tight-fisted. But creation is a wonderful display of how God is so generous and open-handed with his people. He is very much pro-pleasure and pro-joy in the truest sense. So that we might give him praise as the creator. If you want to read and think about 1 Timothy 4, 4 to 5, that's exactly Paul's point. You know, one glance at the sky on a moonless night, one thundering crack, right, of a, of a storm overhead, those things convince us of God's power. Just a cursory inspection of a spring flower, the wonder of the human hand or witnessing the birth of a child, right, all those things can convince us of God's wisdom, Who can create all this? Who can fashion all this simply by his word? Who can then sustain it and uphold it year after year? God's saying, Job, can you do that? Of course Job can't do that. You and I can't do that. Only God can do that. He alone is God. He communicates. He creates. But a third thing I want us to see is that he controls. God controls And of course, that God can control all things, that's only possible because he has created all things. And perhaps, I think above all, it's God's control. It's his rule over all he has made. It's that rule that stands out most clearly, I think, in these chapters. In chapter 38, verse 10. It's God who prescribed the limits and the boundaries for the sea. He set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther. Here shall your proud waves be stayed. Right? It's God who commands the sun to rise in chapter 38, verse 12. It's God who calls the rain to fall on an uninhabited wasteland. Chapter 38, verse 26. Why would God do that? An uninhabited wasteland. It needs no rain. There's no man on it. There's nothing living there. Well, just to underscore, I think, that God is often up to things that obviously have nothing to do with us. Nothing to do with us. He enjoys the proliferation of grass and the flowers that bloom simply for his own pleasure. It's God who controls the movements of the stars, the arrangements of the constellations in chapter 38, 31 to 33. He controls rain and drought. So Californians can moan and wail all they want. 
at the end of the day, God is sovereign over these things. There in 38, starting in verse 39, all the way through the end of chapter 39, God shifts and he starts talking about the animal kingdom. He moves. And notice what animals he's not highlighting. He's not highlighting domesticated animals. He rather chooses to highlight that which is wild and mysterious, even terrifying. He's highlighting a whole realm of God's creation that is not dependent on humanity, not dependent upon us for food and shelter. He's not talking about the Labrador. He's talking about wild and terrifying animals like the lion, the mountain goat, the wild ox, the hawk, not exactly terrifying unless you're a small thing, but nonetheless, these things, even the ostrich. I mean, notice what he says about the wild ox, chapter 39, verse 9. It's a creature, by the way, now extinct, but while it lived, six feet wide at the shoulders, a massive beast, probably second only to the elephant. And notice what he says, chapter 39, verse 9. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes? Or will he harrow or will he sort of plow the valleys after you? He said, God's saying to Job, Job, will he be your pet? Will he be your little pet? Will you be a, a wild ox whisperer? Will you, will you let it feed out of your hand? And of course, it's all ridiculous because if Job were to attempt any of these things, he probably wouldn't survive. Of course, if Job could tame such a beast, what an ass such a beast would be on a farm. I mean, who needs a new caterpillar tractor when you've got this wild ox at your disposal? But God's point to Job is that it is going to take wisdom beyond Job's to ever tame such a beast. God controls the natural world. Even the behemoth and the leviathan, even those beasts answer to God. He created them. They do not answer to Job. And yet it's not just the natural world. A lot of the verses are focused there, but it's, it's the moral world as well. You know, as we move into that second speech, that's what God brings up in the first bit of that second speech. If you look at chapter 40, verse 8. I think here we're getting close to the theological heart of these chapters. Because God will say to Job, after he says, dress for action, get ready. All right, verse 8. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be right? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Down to verse 12. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Remember, Job's been complaining a bit about God's driving skills. He said, in effect, God, you've got to go back to driver ed. This isn't, this isn't working. This is not, this is not sufficient. And in effect, God's saying in these verses, okay, Job, why don't you give it a go? You're so confident. I'll step back. I'll leave it to you. Surely you can do a better job of running this world, of dealing with evil than, than I am. Surely you can deal with the, the Bashar al-Assad's or the, the Kim Jong-un's of the world. I mean, the U.S., France, Germany, Japan, None of those world powers have, have been able to build a coalition. But, but Job, you can surely do it. You can do it. The injustices of racism or sexism or global terrorism. Job, you, you've got that covered right as well. You can do that. Of course, the reality is Job can do none of these things. He's no better at handling any of these things than Jim Carrey and Bruce Almighty. It's not going to work. It's not going to go well for him. All of these things are outside of Job's control, and that's God's point. He's saying, you, Job, can no more control the moral order of things. You can no more even pretend to understand what I am doing in the moral order of the universe. 
then you can control the natural order of things. You see that connection? He's connecting Job's inability to control any of the natural things and saying, if you can't control those things, how do you even begin to think you're going to be able to control the moral order of things? Deeply more complicated. Friends, in whatever you're facing, these chapters are screaming to you that God, despite however it may appear, is in control. Lamentations 3.38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Isaiah 45.7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Ecclesiastes 7.14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. Right? Things may look terribly out of sorts to us. We may be panicking here, but recognize God is never panicking in heaven. This is God's world. God has no problems. He only has plans. Right? When we can't understand, when we can't trace those plans, right? what did Spurgeon say? Trust his heart. Trust his heart. Because all this reminds us of another one who would come. Another one who would come and his critics would demand answers of him. And yet, like God before Job, do you remember what Jesus does so often when presented with challenges? He poses questions. He pushes it right back. And like God who looks at the seas in 38.11 and says, Thus far shall you come and no farther. Here shall your proud waves be stayed. Do you remember Jesus in Mark 4? Commanding the wind and the waves and they obey him. Thus far and no further. Like God who controls the gates of death in chapter 38 verse 17. So Jesus would cross that threshold. Jesus would enter into death only three days later to smash right back through those gates, victorious over death and sin. Right? Even in the darkest of hours, God is teaching Job that he is in control. He has not fallen asleep at the wheel. It's not on cruise control and he's missed a few exits. We read in Acts 4, Acts 4, 27, that it was Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles and the people of Israel, in other words, all human authority and all of humanity together conspiring against Jesus. God's in trouble. No, this all happened just as your plan had predestined to take place. God has no problems only plans. He was in control of Jesus's life and he's in control of your life. And God is saying to Job, trust me. He's saying to you, trust me. Because we like to be in the driver's seat. That's not just a modern phenomena. That is very much a human phenomena. It's the very way Adam and Eve were in the garden. I know God said, but I think I know better. And we grow discontent with God. And like Adam and Eve, we make a mess of our lives. One of the greatest lessons in the book of Job is that we can find contentment in God without having all the answers. For just why in the world would we think and assume that our horizons are broad enough that our understanding is deep enough to comprehend God's purposes. Why would we think to make that assumption? You know, one friend put it like this. When we fail to recognize our limitations, it's like deciding because our car radio is not picking up any radio broadcasts that there must be no radio station sending out a broadcast. But why would we assume that? Is that the only possible explanation? Right? We think we're entitled to answers and that such answers will turn the static and the confusion of our lives into 
HD to full and complete clarity. And yet, while we can comprehend basic arithmetic, we've got to recognize God deals in quantum mechanics. The understandings are not the same. So do we really expect God to give us the solution to every one of our issues? Would we even understand the solution if he gave it to us? I mean, how would that even help us? Above all, Job teaches us, we don't need to possess all the facts. We don't need to possess them. We don't need them to make sense of our lives. We need him. We need the Lord. Job was never given the window into God's purposes. Even when he demanded them, God didn't give him a list of reasons. He took them on a guided safari. And he said, trust me. Trust me. Knowing him is in fact better than having all the answers. Friends, we need to know this. Knowing why is not as important as knowing who. And if that sounds familiar, it's because we're right back to the main message of the book of Job. The whole book trying to drive home this very simple point. Our hope in the midst of suffering is not knowing why, but knowing who. You know, I was taught as a new Christian that knowing why isn't the key to our trials. It's actually knowing what. That's the key. You want to know the key to your trial? It's knowing what, namely what you're to do. And I held that message with me for a long, long time. But realize that's not at all the message of Job. It's not the message of Job. It's, it's not why these things have happened. It's not what we're supposed to do. It's who is behind them. That is what we most need. That's what matters most. And that's what's revealed to Job by the end of the book. He's not given answers. He's not told what to do. He's simply given a vision of God, and that is enough. Friend, is it enough for you? Is it enough for you? Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for chapters like this. God, chapters that remind us that we need a dress down sometimes. We need you to look at us and to remind us that we are not all that we often think we are. But you are far better than we could ever possibly comprehend. Oh God, we give you praise that you don't leave us in silence. You don't treat us as our sins deserve. Oh God, you condescend and are kind and communicate. You tarry with us when we're especially not deserving. You are a forbearing God. Oh Lord, we pray in the midst of our trials when it is often so hard to trust. Oh God, we pray that we would know you as this God who communicates, who creates, who controls all things. And may we look to the cross and never doubt your good purposes. In Jesus' name.